So we've been working through the books of Samuel in the Old Testament here. This is at the time in Israel's history when they've moved from the period of the Judges They've moved into the promised land, and now we're right on the cusp of this new era in Israel's history, living in the promised land and having a human king to rule over them. We've seen in the book of Samuel examples of faithfulness and unfaithfulness, examples of God's blessing given or God's blessings withheld and punishment that comes, and really that individual responsibility that comes on each person that God has called for his purposes. We saw that you know, there, there are no grandchildren uh, that God has. He only has children. And so for Eli's sons, they couldn't kind of skate in on, on Eli's uh, coattails. We're gonna, we also saw last week Samuel, although he was faithful uh, to follow God and to point the, God's people toward God, his own sons did not follow in his ways. And there's that need for each generation to know the one true God and to follow after him. It's not enough that your mom and dad knew Jesus or that your grandparents did you also need to have that personal encounter with the living God. And so now um, there, there's a, a crisis moment coming in Israel as they are saying, we want a king like all the other nations have. We know that we serve the one true God, the creator of all things. We know that he has thundered with his voice to defeat the Philistines in battle. But instead of having him go out before us in battle, we'd like a human king like all the other nations have. And often our hearts go in that direction as well, where we turn to our own adequacy, our own smarts, our own resources, our own experience. We look at the world around us and we say, well, maybe we should mimic that. Maybe whatever they're doing in corporate America or in the entertainment industry, maybe that should be my value. Maybe that's where my heart should be, my beliefs. And yet we serve the one true living God, and he desires to be our king. He desires to go out before us and fight our battles on our behalf. So now we're, we're at this point where God says, all right, Samuel, give the people what they're asking for. They want a human king instead of me? Honor their request. And that's where we find ourselves here as we go to 1 Samuel chapter 9. We meet the first king of Israel named Saul. And really, I think this story of, of Saul, there's, it's a complicated story. It's kind of a fun story of a guy who goes out to look for his donkeys and comes back finding out he's going to be the next king. That's kind of a big day, right? And so in chapters 9 and 10, as Saul is moving toward this place where God is putting him in a position, there's a lot of questions I have as I read these chapters. On the one hand, Saul is chosen by the people. The people are the ones who say, we want a king. We want a tall king. We want a good-looking king. We want a king from a good, wealthy family. On the other hand, he's somewhat chosen by God. God says, I'm going to use you to defeat the Philistines. The cry of my people has risen up before me. And God says, I don't choose kings based on those criteria that you just listed off, nation of Israel, or any human that's here today. God says, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. God gave out some rules in Deuteronomy 17 about what a king for his people should look like and should do. It had nothing to do with external features. It had nothing to do with the wealth of his family of origin. It had everything to do with make a copy of my law, carry that with you everywhere you go. Teach the people what it is to obey all my laws, commands, and decrees. Show them what it is to acknowledge the one true king, the maker of heaven and earth. And that's the kind of king that God desired for his people. We know really as we look at Saul in, in literary terms, Saul is the foil to the protagonist David that's to come. We're going to meet David who is the king who has a heart after God. He's a man after God's own heart. And yet Saul, we're going to find out right away, doesn't really know a lot about God. He has other people who explain to him, how do you hear from God? What's God's word all about? And there's some glimmers of hope with Saul early on that, you know, he seems open to these things. And God does choose him and anoint him and use him in these chapters that we're about to look at. And yet, it's all balanced by some stories that are to come in the life of Saul. So as I'm looking and wrestling, looking at these chapters and wrestling with these concepts, I'm really coming to that question of what does it mean to be used by God? And really, I think... I can think of three possibilities on that. I think if, if I asked for a show of hands, how many of you would like to be used by God? You'd probably say, yeah, that sounds pretty good. I want God to use me. And yet I have a caution as I look at Saul's story because Saul was undoubtedly used by God, but not in the good way. 
Um, so I think there, there are, there's one category. I don't really see this one in Saul, but I think there is a category of being used by God that's really more like spiritual pride. And it's what we see in that passage in 1 Corinthians that I mentioned to you earlier about the body parts. There, there is this tendency at times as members of the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, to look at another body part and go, yeah, no, you're not as cool as me. You know, my gift is better than your gift. Or, so that's the superiority complex, right? Or there can be another way of being used by God where you have an inferiority complex and you're looking at all the other members of the body and you're saying everybody else's gifts are way cooler than mine. I'm insignificant. And so there's this temptation to say, I don't need you or you don't need me. And God's word tells us there in 1 Corinthians 12 that God is the one who gives those gifts. God has given gifts to edify the body, to build it up, and we cannot say to another member of the body of Christ, I don't need you. And so that spiritual pride um, being used by God, it can be a, a desire for recognition. It can be a desire for prestige. Maybe you're dreaming of your name on the front page of the Christianity Today magazine. You know, look at all the souls that were brought into God's kingdom because of this person using their gifts. Um, you know, or maybe it, it shows up in even the ways that we share good news about how God has used us with our gifts. You know, I led this person to Jesus. I performed this baptism. I prayed for healing and God answered and responded. And I think the risk, the subtle risk, there, there's a good desire. It's a good desire that God be glorified and yet there's an irreverence toward the king. There's a a desire to glorify self over glorifying the king. And it's really a diminished view of the sovereignty of God that would cause us to desire to be used by God in ways that would attract attention to us. So that's a risk when we talk about being used by God. Saul's dilemma is even worse than that. Saul's way of being used by God is really a complete unawareness of God's sovereignty. So this is a person who doesn't really even know there is a God. He's just going about his own life. And he has a servant who says, you know, maybe we should seek the man of God with this real problem that we have today. We're trying to find our donkeys. So, you know, we've looked everywhere. Why don't we go to the man of God? Maybe the man of God can direct us and help us and show us the way that we should go for this practical need that we have today. And Saul's like, okay, why not? I don't really know what you're talking about. Let's go in that direction and, and, and pursue this option. So it's, it's really a person who is unaware of the things of God, unaware that there is a king, unaware of the sovereign God, self-focused, self-serving, even opposed to God's will. And, you know, and really to think, can God use a person like that? Can God use someone who stands in opposition to him? Or does he only use willing people? There's a terrifying verse in Romans 9 that I'll just quote for you. The second part we would probably print on a t-shirt and wear boldly. The first part is the scary part. The second part says this, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And we'd wear that and go, man, used by God would be on the back and then that verse from Romans 9, 17b would be on the front, right? The scary part is that little phrase at the very beginning of verse 17 in Romans 9. It says this, For the scripture says to Pharaoh. You talk about someone in opposition to God's plans. This is the ruler of the nation that has enslaved God's people for 430 years, forcing them to build for him and for his kingdom, uh, with, with killing the, their, their baby boys to try to stunt their population growth opposed to God and his ways. And as Moses comes, now we're going way back in Israel's history, but as Moses comes and says, let my people go, and here's a message from God, and here's the demonstration of God's power, and here's plague number one, and, and Pharaoh's heart is hardened, hardened, hardened. Each of those 12 plagues, he stands in opposition to God, and yet God says of Pharaoh in, in the New Testament, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might... Show my power in you that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. There is a king. There is a sovereign God. He uses all kinds of people. People who are self-focused, glorying in their gifts, their spiritual gifts, bragging about their you know, teaching opportunities in God's kingdom or sharing their faith. 
He uses people like Pharaoh and Saul who are really ignorant of God or, or stand in opposition to God. God says, I can use you. You're going to be judged, but I will still work through you and glorify my name. And the place we want to get as we look at this story, this warning in the life of Saul, and then David, who's to come in a few chapters, is there is a third way of being used by God, and that is to be used by God in the good way, where you're used by God for the greater glory of God. That you get on board with God's own kingdom mission in glorifying his name and demonstrating to all of creation the good king, uh, the, the command to Adam and Eve back in Genesis 1 and 2. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over it, represent the king to creation is really what that's talking about. And if you want to be used by God in that way, then you're going to experience abundant life along with being used by him. If, you, if you're used by God one of those first two ways, there's going to be a lot of pain and heartache and misery and disappointment and unfulfillment and that self-glory that you went after is going to leave you still feeling empty and insecure or that standing in opposition to God, he might still work through you. It's going to bring a lot of pain to you. So let's be the people who are used by God for the greater glory of God and who, like King David, God looks at each of us and says, there's a woman after my own heart. There's a man after my own heart. That is the point of this story of of Saul in contrast to David. And so let's dig in now as we meet Saul here in 1 Samuel chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, son of Bekorah, son of Ephiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. Kind of sneak that in there. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. I take that to mean, you know, he, he stood head and shoulders above the rest, right? I won't make any comment about the picture of the Asia team that we just saw a little earlier. <laughs> Um, actually, I guess I just did. So, But that, that's, a, that's kind of a picture of Saul. So he stood out in a crowd, and he was impressive, and he had a family background that was impressive. There's good looks, wealth, and stature. These are some of the fickle ways that we judge and evaluate the worth of another human, right? It, not a lot has changed. So we're talking 1,000 B.C. You fast forward 3,000 years, we're looking at these same things today. Oh, man, they, they, they look like they got some money. Oh, man, they're good looking. Oh, look at how, look at how tall they are. Look at how muscular, right? And, and so we are tempted to evaluate other humans by these same criteria. We're going to find out here in Samuel. Samuel himself, the prophet used by God, is tempted to evaluate people based on these measurements, these very external features. And God has to tell Samuel, later when he's going to Jesse's house to anoint the next king, don't look at Eliab. Don't look at this good-looking big son of Jesse. I have rejected him. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. So Samuel himself has to learn this lesson. But we're getting a glimpse of the people's choice award for king right here. What, what will impress the people as, as the nation of Israel is looking? Who's going to lead us into battle? Who's going to be the king that takes the place of our God who was our king? And they're looking at some of these external factors that have been highlighted here in the first couple of verses. Now, the donkeys of Kish, verse 3, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, Take one of the young men with you and arise, go look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but did not find them. And they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. So we've got a man on a mission to find some donkeys who's about to find out that he's the king. Kind of a humorous story. We, uh, I probably won't share the phrase that came up at Men's Coffee on Wednesday about a king who couldn't find his own donkey I think there's some humor here in the text that we are supposed to maybe chuckle at a little bit we've got this guy out there looking for his donkeys and he can't even find his donkeys and this is the guy that's going to be chosen by the people to lead them into battle so verse 5 when they came to the land of Zuth 
Saul said to his servant who was with him, come, let's go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. You know, we've been meandering around out here looking for these donkeys so long that the family back home is going to start to wonder if we're okay, so let's, let's go back. Now listen who begins to point the way to God in this narrative. It's not the king, the future king, Saul, who's made a copy of the, this book of the law and is carrying it with him and is modeling and showing and demonstrating what it is to obey all the laws, commands, decrees of the almighty God, the king, the creator of the universe. Now he's saying, let's go back home. But listen who does speak now with some guidance and direction. Verse 6. But the servant said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Now, you think if you were the nation who's chosen by God to be blessed, to be a blessing, so that all the nations of the earth can be blessed through you, and you were going to select a leader you would find a leader who could show you the way you should go in terms of covenant faithfulness. And yet here we have a servant telling this future king, the people's choice, that there's this other guy, this other dude who can maybe show us the way we should go. And Saul goes along with that. And so now there's a discussion that to me is reminiscent of a little bit earlier in Samuel when we saw the nation of the Philistines crowding in in battle and the Israelites crying out and they, they came up with a plan. They said, let's bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord right here into the battlefield and use it like a magic charm, like a good luck piece, a lucky rabbit's foot that will like ensure the victory. And so again, they were wanting to bring God into their plans. That battle didn't go so well. God didn't show up on that day and that ark was captured and off, drug off to the Philistine region and placed before their god, Dagon. We, just, we read that a couple weeks ago. And so like that story, Saul and really his servant are seeing this man of God who we're going to find out is Samuel. They're seeing him like a, a good luck charm to, uh, you know, I've got some plans. My plan is I'm going to go look for a donkey how do I tack a little bit of God onto my plans? You know, maybe I'll go get some good luck from the, the seer who can help me with my agenda. That's different than a heart that's submitted to God, a heart that's after God says, God, what are your plans? How can I get on board with your plans? How can I work for your glory? How can I be a loyal subject of your kingdom and follow after you? Let you have the steering wheel. I'll sit in the passenger seat. And that's not what we're seeing here in Saul. So Saul says to his servant, verse 7, If we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone. There's no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Well, here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I'll give it to the man of God to tell us our way. You know, we'll, we'll pay him off. We'll bribe him to get what we want for our plans. And a little explanation here, verse 9. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let's go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. So we're, we're, you know, the story is now moving toward where Samuel and Saul are going to meet. But really, Saul's heart in going to Samuel, it's not to seek God. It's to seek his donkeys. It's to bribe this other individual who has a connection with God to let me tap into that power that will give me what I want. And we're going to see that pattern repeated in Saul's life a little bit later as he, he doesn't uh, do what Samuel has commanded him, instructed him by the Lord, and he takes matter to, matters into his own hands, offers a sacrifice that's not authorized by God. So time and again, Saul is really working for self-interest for his own purposes, in his own knowledge, his own understanding. He's not a model of that kind of a king that God had said, this is what you need for your people. I think, I think uh, the, the, the point in here for me as I'm looking at this as both a leader and a follower. You know, number one, I want to lead only when I'm following Jesus. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Well, if I'm not following Christ, I'm not going to say follow me. It's only as I'm following Christ that I'm able as a leader in my, in my home, in my family, in my marriage, with my children, in my church, 
to say, follow me as I follow Christ. And I think also as a follower, the message to each of us, don't follow anybody who's not following God. Don't follow after someone who's just living for self or living for their own self-interest. Pray for that person, encourage that person, warn that person, but don't just get in step and put your faith and hope in someone who's not following the one king. Because really all authority that we as humans have is delegated. There's one king, there's one sovereign, there's one Lord, there's one ruler, and he raises up those whom he chooses to raise up and he squelches those who are in in opposition to his plans and ways. And so follow those who are following Jesus. And then with confidence, knowing that you're still in process, that, that work of sanctification that Mike prayed about is still at work within each of us, God is still transforming us into instruments of worship for his glory. And yet with confidence, as you're in that process, say, follow me as I follow Christ. So lead and follow in ways that will bring glory and honor to God. But here we have Saul really not in that category at this point. He's actually uh, looking for these temporal concerns, these earthly mundane things like donkeys. And he's saying, maybe God can help me find this thing that I need, this thing that I want today. So we've met now one voice, the voice of this servant who is pointing toward God, pointing Saul toward truth. Now we meet some other unlikely characters in this story, some women at a well who also speak some truth and give guidance. Verse 11, as they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? They answered, he is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has just now come to the city because the people have come to sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way to the high place. So there's some subtle truths about Samuel that we're seeing really tying up the story of Eli, who we met earlier at the beginning of 1 Samuel. If you remember Eli and his sons, one of the sins that they committed was there were very clear instructions that God had laid out in the books of the law regarding the sacrifice that's brought before God to make atonement for the sins of the people and the provision for the Levitical priests, those who are uh, in charge of running God's house. So the instruction was, give God the best. Offer the meat with the fat still on it. Give that to God as a burnt offering. Later, here's some portions that are set aside for the priests and their families. Now, Eli's sons, and actually Eli's whole household, were saying, well, wait a minute, that's a perfectly good steak. Don't boil that. You know, no, we get, give me that steak with the fat on it. That's a nice thick slab. You can kind of offer whatever's left to God. And so we saw that picture of unfaithfulness in worship, irreverence towards God, a lack of recognition of the glory of the one true king. Samuel, on the other hand, in this paragraph, we're seeing the people are waiting. The sacrifices are proceeding as God has instructed And really, Samuel is the picture, probably because of the warning of Eli and his family and the judgment that came, he's a picture of covenant faithfulness. So he's been faithful to model to the people, to show them, to lead them into worship, to look to God and his word as the revelation of God himself, God's plans, and God's ways. And Samuel's been looking to God for those cues. He's been modeling that to the people. He's really filling the function of what God had said in Deuteronomy 17. When you have a king, this is the kind of king. Not a king who goes after horses, women, and gold. Power, money, and lust. Not that kind of a king, but a king who knows my word, lives my word daily, and shows it to the people. And Samuel really has fulfilled that function as a prophet, not a king. And we're seeing that covenant faithfulness showing up here. But these young women at the well who are once again, hey, future king of Israel who's supposed to show the way to God, uh, we'll show you the way to where you can find the man of God since you're clueless. I think of the John Maxwell quote. A leader is one who 
knows the way, shows the way, and goes the way. We're not seeing that in Saul's life. Saul doesn't know the way, he's not showing the way, and he's really eventually not going the way. And yet this is the people's choice for king because of his looks, because of his stature, because of the wealth, because they're looking for a king who will fight their battles for them and go out in battle. When they serve the God who thunders with his voice to defeat the enemy, they're settling for this very poor substitute. What do you do when you're facing a, a very practical situation in life? You know, the donkeys are missing. The car won't start. There's no money left in the checking account. And there's still some month left. You just got laid off. You found out about a medical diagnosis. I mean, there's some very real issues. This is not a light issue of, you know, your family's livelihood, your future, the expectations. There's a legitimate need here in this story that we've seen in the first half of chapter 9. So what do we do when we face those very real concerns of life? I think we should do, number one, what the servant and, the, and these women at the well instructed. Inquire of God. Go to God. Don't tire yourself out trying to figure out these earthly concerns in your own strength and ability. Don't wait until you've exhausted all of the resources you have available to you before you go, well, there's nothing else we can do but pray now. Start with prayer. Start by inquiring of God. Go to him first. He knows your needs and cares about you. Jesus highlights that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, right before he gets into the Lord's Prayer. Your Father knows your needs before you ask. So bring to him those daily concerns like, God, just give us today our daily bread. That's pretty basic, right? God, I'm hungry. Can you meet this need? Inquire of the Lord as a regular practice. Live in that constant heart of prayer as you're driving, as you're during the commute, when you get up in the morning, when you go to bed at night. May he be the first thing on our hearts and minds as we submit to him and look to him. Not the last thing that we do after we've exhausted our own strength and our own wisdom. And really, we're seeing now, Samuel makes this same message explicit to Saul. really says, Look first to God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things will be added to you. Don't worry about the donkeys. There's bigger fish to fry, Saul. Do you know there's a God? Do you know his word? The donkey, put the donkeys out of your mind, Saul. Stop worrying about that. There's a kingdom here. There's a nation that's chosen by God, and he's about to use you to deliver them from the Philistines. Let's focus, Saul. Smack them on both cheeks there a little bit. So let's read that, that portion as we go to verse 15. Now this is when Saul and Samuel finally meet. The day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Now, that sounds like a pretty favorable word from God regarding Saul. Right? So, Samuel, get ready. Tomorrow, this tall, good-looking guy from a wealthy family is going to show up. And he says, I want you to anoint him. That's a king action, right? That's, a, that's something you do for a future king is you use oil to mark them as that future king. That word anoint, that's where you get um, other words that, that come up in the Bible like Christ, okay? The one who's christened or Messiah. That's the Hebrew word for that phrase to be anointed. So whenever you see anoint, um, Messiah, Christ, think king. That's what, that's what that word is talking about. And so God says, I, I want you, Samuel, to anoint this guy who's going to show up. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. What is he going to do? Well, God lists a few things. First of all, he's going to be a prince over my people Israel. To us, that sounds pretty positive. Until you go back and read the warnings that Samuel had given to the people in chapter 8. What does that mean to have a prince over you, nation of Israel? 
Well, it's going to cost you your sons for this king's armies and fields. It's going to cost you your daughters for this king's palace and kitchen. It's going to cost you your livestock, your grain, your fields, your servants. All all the good things that you have, the, the best things that you have are going to go to this prince who's going to rule over you. And that's the context in which God says this phrase to Saul. Not quite so positive as our first reaction. Oh, a prince over my people Israel. What about that next phrase? He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. That sounds good too, right? I mean, you don't want the enemy to defeat God's chosen people. So this sounds like God is giving his blessing and saying, yep, he's, he's going to be a good thing. But when you go back to chapter 7, you see a very similar situation. And in verse 8, the people are crying out to the Lord and to Samuel and saying, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And we see God answering that prayer, thundering with his voice, routing the enemy. And now God's saying, this man is going to save my people from the hand of the Philistines. They could have had the God who thunders with his voice as their king. Instead, they're settling for not just second best, but like bottom of the pile. Worst choice. And then he says, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. There is still this mercy and compassion in the heart of God. There is still the promises, the unconditional promises of God to his nation Israel. And he is still working, and yet like a loving dad will, he's letting his kids face the consequences of their choices. That's how wisdom is acquired. It's not pretty, it's not fun, but helicopter parenting is not a good plan whether you're a parent living today or the maker of the universe. It really cheats your kids and robs them of the ability to acquire that wisdom that they'll need later in life. So God's saying if they're asking for a king and you've warned them and they're still demanding a king, give them what they desire and they'll learn through this path of pain and hardship. And yet his heart is still for them. And he, he hears their cry and he's not, he has not turned his face from them, from his nation. So let's read on in the story here now as they actually meet. Verse 17, when Samuel saw saw, 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 Saul, that's a tongue twister, the Lord said to him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. So there's one more message from God. Doesn't sound real favorable, right? This is the man who will restrain my people. Okay. Not quite what we'd hoped for as we were asking for a king to rule over us like all the other nations. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and all of your father's house? Saul is like, wait, 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 where's the seer? Who, who are you? What? what are you t- Where are the donkeys? Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Totally clueless, right? He went out to look for donkeys, finds out he's going to be the king. But listen again to some of these words, these really powerful phrases that we could just glance over. If maybe you've read this story a lot of times, you're like, yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Saul becomes a king. He's, God rejects him in a couple chapters. David's. Look at some of these phrases that are just are meant to hit us between the eyeballs. Maybe we've read the story too many times to notice. But Samuel says, for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Let me ask you that question. For whom is all that is desirable in Israel? For whom is all that is desirable in the state of Colorado or in our families, in our lives? Who is worthy of all glory and all honor and every good thing? Who's the giver of all blessings and the one to whom all praise and glory is due? Is it Saul? 
Is it any human? Or is it the maker of heaven and earth, the one true king? And yet this is in fulfillment of the words that Samuel had given to the nation of Israel in chapter 8. When you have a king, all that is desirable in Israel, that tithe, that first 10%, the best of everything, it's going to go to this human. Is that the purpose of the tithe? Bring the tithe into the storehouse of God. Worship him, honor him, bring glory to him. Remember that he's the giver of all good things, everything that's desirable. Give him the best. Don't bring some lame, sick lamb from your flock. Bring the very best, the choicest, the one without blemish or spot as a sacrifice to God. And yet here now we're, there's a chain of events moving Israel in the wrong direction where they're putting hope in a human. And Samuel, Samuel communicates this message to Saul. Saul's very confused. He's, we're going to find out how reluctant he is in the next chapter. Um, he's kind of going along with this just because the man of God is giving him very clear instructions, and yet his heart is never really in it. We find out a little bit more about his heart now as we conclude chapter 9, verse 22. Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited. There were about 30 persons. Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see what was kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you may eat it with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day and when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. Saul has now been refreshed. He's been fed. He's been rested after his day day or days of looking for those donkeys. And now he's about to be sent out. He's been given some clue as to what his future is going to hold. And now look at this last verse. I think, again, telling of Saul's qualifications to serve as the king that God has chosen to lead his people. We get a little picture of his resume here in verse 27. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us, and when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. What was that charter for kingship back in Deuteronomy 17? Don't choose a foreigner. Don't choose a king who goes after horses, women, or gold. Choose a king who knows my word and shows my word and goes the way of my word. And here we've got Samuel saying, hey, buddy, you need a little coaching, a little remedial um, you know, theology for dropouts you know theology for dummies here you you don't know god let me show you the word of god because you're supposed to know this stuff if you're going to be the king of god's chosen people and so the servant goes on and samuel stays to give some instructions to saul then we get into the story of the actual anointing and commissioning of saul we're going to we're going to get into chapter 10 you okay with that i know we're americans with short attention spans can we can we focus a little bit more as we go to the king who reveals himself to us? we got time. You can scowl at me. We're going anyway. <laughs> Verse 1, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two women by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelsa. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeoth Elohim, 
where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. It's the worship team. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Lots of good promises and confirmations given to Saul. You know, you're going to meet some people, uh, you're going to meet two people in this location uh, that are going to deal with the issue about your donkeys and your dad. Those concerns that are very real. Then you're going to meet three people in this other location, they're going to give you a gift, they're going to give you some bread. There will be some signs that will confirm that this is all part of God's plan that you've been chosen by Him. Then you're going to meet this group of prophets. Um, they're they're going to be worshiping. You're going to be transformed, Saul. You're not going to be the same guy you were before today because God is choosing to use you. There is hope woven into this story. And somehow, despite the unfaithfulness ultimately of Saul, um, there is some ways in which God has used him, anointed him. We're going to see that these words that Samuel foretells are fulfilled. It's, it's a true, accurate prophecy. Each of these details comes to pass. And God chooses, anoints, uses this guy who is really an unwilling vessel, unaware, stubborn, self-serving, arrogant. And then to make matters worse, this other guy we're about to meet, David, in a few chapters, the man after God's own heart, he commits adultery, murder. That's messy. I wish it was cleaner. You know, I wish the bad guy was just, the first thing he thought of as he's eating his eggs in the morning was, what evil am I going to do today? And I wish the good guy was just the hero that is always upstanding. And yet there's this mixture of good and evil within every heart. And it's really as we are submitted to the king, as we are focused on his glory alone, as we are carrying a copy of his word with us and immersing ourselves in it and living it and knowing the way and showing the way and going the way that we are used by him, that we bring glory to his kingdom, that his truth is spread, that we are blessed and we are a blessing. So now, uh, these promises are coming. Saul's probably taking notes. Okay, two guys here, three there. Prophecy, a worship team, prophecy. Okay, what's next? Now, verse seven, uh, or verse six. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. That transformation, that anointing. Now, when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do because God is with you. There's some hope in that as well. So Saul, you know, you don't have it figured out. God's going to change you, empower you, and then he's going to guide you. And then just step forward with confidence, knowing that God is the one that's leading. Then go down before me to Gilgal. And behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Can you do that, Saul? Can you wait seven days till I come to offer the sacrifice and show you what to do next? Yep, yep, I got it. Does he do that? No. And this becomes the reason that God rejects him as king. So he's got one good week as his reign of king, and that's it. One good week of being anointed by God, chosen by God, prophesying, we're going to see here. And yet his faithfulness doesn't even last through that seventh day. And on the seventh day, we get a picture of his own heart. He's still self-reliant, trusting in his own intellect or his own heart, just like we Americans do, right? Those are the two options. Do you follow your head or your heart? No one even talks about or do you follow the word of God? And the risk is both our heads and our hearts are corrupted and polluted by sin. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Every thought and intention is only evil continually. And we're choosing between those two? No thanks. 
And that's what we see as a picture of, of Saul as that week expires. We'll get to that in a, in a few weeks. But today, things are good. And these, these words are being fulfilled. God is working in and through Saul. In verse 9, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. How many of you today would say, I need that. I want God to give me another heart. I want God to work in me in that sort of a way. Yeah, I, there, there's, I, I'm, I love that verse. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? I pray this happens to you as you use that gift that God's Spirit gives you, as you're faithful to work in his kingdom for his glory, empowered by his Spirit, that the people who used to know you are going, what's going on with you? Where did this come from? Where'd you get this new heart? Where'd you get this authority? And that happens when we are not bringing glory to ourselves, but when we're being used by God in that best way, focused on the same thing that his heart is focused on, which is to bring glory to himself. And then we get to see the joy and the delight of being used by him and having people around us sit up and pay attention. This was the call for the nation of Israel to be a light, to be a city on a hill, to have all the other nations looking in and and saying, who is this people that serves the one true God the maker of heaven and earth. And as Saul was walking in the Spirit, he got to taste that for one week. In verse 12, the, the man, a, a man of the place answered, who is their father? What family did this guy come from? And that, and that became a, parab- a proverb. Is Saul also among the pro- prophets? That was a... a uh, a bumper sticker, a tweetable quote that was circulating around uh, on the social networks at this time. And when he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, please tell me, what did Samuel say to you? Have you ever had it teed up for you like this? Where somebody's basically just saying, can you tell me about God's kingdom? What's going on in your life? Tell me about, you went to see the man of God. What did you find out? What did God say to you? What is God, when, 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 Sam, when Saul, when Samuel pulled you aside and told you about the word of God, what did you learn? What did you hear? Tell me about the kingdom of God. Have you ever had it teed up for you really nicely like that? Maybe it's an uncle. Maybe it's someone, a relative or someone he's brought into your path. What does Saul do? Maybe what we do sometimes when it's teed up for us like that. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. How many times are we guilty of that? Let's keep it in the category of talking about the Broncos game. You know, I, uh, I'm a little nervous today. Maybe, what if I don't have the right words? What if they reject me? And for whatever reason, whatever excuse, we can be like Saul. We're given that opportunity, that ask. Will you tell me? Sh- tell me what you learned. Tell me what you know. Share with me the truth. And we opt for only talking about this worldly things when we've got the answers to so much more. And so now the people get to meet their new king, verse 17. Should be a day of celebration, right? Hey, get, you, you asked for a king like all the other nations have. Today's the big day. Here he is. <laughs> then Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God. Wait a minute, this is, a, this is coronation day. We're supposed to be celebrating. Today you have rejected your God? 
put away the streamers and the balloons. You've rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and distresses, and you've said to him, set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So the whole nation comes out on this day of really a a commemoration of rejecting God as the one who fights their battles. Today we're going to make it official. You have replaced God as your king with this human. Then Samuel brought out all the tribes of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. So narrowing it down from the whole nation to one tribe, to one clan, to one family, now to one individual. But when they sought him, Saul, he could not be found. You know, Deuteronomy 17, the king who will show God's people how to follow after him, where is he? He's absent. So they inquired again of the Lord. Why is it that they're not inquiring of God on a daily, hourly basis? Why in these rare occasions where now this human that they put hope in is not around? Let's go back and ask God. And the Lord answered. And he said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. So they ran and took him from there. Very willing king here now. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. We already knew that. And Samuel said to the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And the people shouted, Long live the king. Samuel is impressed by this stature of this guy he i think he's i think samuel gets it wrong here do you see him whom the lord has chosen again it's complicated in a sense in this chapter god did say or in the preceding chapter god said i'm uh, there here's the here's the guy that i'm going to give to the people they're they're getting what they asked for did god really choose saul ultimately or was it really the people who chose saul really the people who rejected god and instead chose saul And now God is sovereign over all things, using even people who are not qualified, who are going to be dictators, who are going to bring pain and oppression, who are opposed to God and to his ways. He uses even people like that for his ultimate glory. And so, in a sense, what Samuel says is true. This is the man God has chosen. In another sense, really, it's the people's choice. And the people all get excited and yell, long live the king. And then verse 25, Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. We know what that's all about. We read it last week. Deuteronomy 17, if you need a refresher. That was 400 years prior in Israel's history when God says someday you're going to look for a king. Here's the kind of king to look for. Now Samuel gets up that day and he reads from Deuteronomy 17 all the the duties and rights of the kingship. And then he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. What did Deuteronomy 17 say about writing the word of the Lord? Who did it say was supposed to do that? The king. Not the prophet who anoints the king. And yet there is a man of God, but he's about to leave the scene. And now the, the kingdom's being handed over to Someone who's not going to lead them in all the laws, commands, and decrees of the Lord. So Samuel writes, writes down God's word, lays it up, lays it before the Lord. And then Samuel sent the people away, each to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. 
you know, these little narrative clues of some things yet to come in Samuel. But, but you know, again, it's a messy mixture. There's faithfulness mixed in with unfaithfulness. There's these men of valor who, whose hearts God has touched. There's a king that we're about to meet uh, in a couple of weeks who has a, a heart after God, who's humble. And in contrast, like, like Eli's sons, it was, it was said in chapter 2, worthless fellows, sons of Belial. It says in, in, there in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2 that we're meeting some of these same unsavory characters here mixed in among God's people. And the message really for us as we look to this and say, well, God, what are you having us to do as a body today from this story? There's one king. There's only one who is sovereign. There's one Lord who works for his glory and we're to focus our eyes on him. There's a God who reveals himself to us. He reveals his purposes to us. He reveals his ways to us. He does it through his word. And we as his people need to be people who make a copy of this book of the law and we carry it with us and we practice it and we model it and we live it. And it's not what our flesh desires every day. Sometimes we're like, this is boring. I'm too busy. There's this entertainment thing I would rather distract myself with. It's not just from one moment to the next, like, man, I just can't wait to dig into God's word. And our hearts go after other things, just like the characters in the story we met today. And yet, if we delight in the Lord and allow him to give us the desires of our heart, if we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, he'll add all these things to us. If we set our affections on things above and not on earthly things, Colossians 3, 2, then we're actually going to experience the abundant life that God has planned for us, that God enables us to experience. And those things that look like they taste good, those, those appetites that we think will bring joy, they leave us empty, they leave us with our only our own self-glory, they'll always leave us disappointed. And yet if we daily dig in and spend time with him, he will renew us, he'll restore us, he'll go before us in battle. Even when there's a day of defeat, we know that he is still working all things together for his glory, and that joy comes in its season. And so today, let's once again affirm our commitment to serve the one true king. Could we stand together in prayer today? God, as I look around this room and consider the blessing of the body of Christ. I just thank you for so many men of valor here in this room. I thank you for women whose hearts are committed to you. Women who are at the well saying, that's the direction to go to hear from God. Servants who are saying, let's stop tiring ourselves out, running around looking at the circumstances of this life. Let's go inquire of God. I thank you for people like that, that you've blessed me with, blessed our family with here at The Way Church. And God, we pray that we would speak with those words of wisdom more often to one another, that we would encourage one another to inquire of you, to seek you first, to not look to our own strength, our own wisdom, to not become obsessed with the cares of this life. Lord, I pray that in our leading and following, we would be like Paul and not like Saul, that we would say, like Paul does, follow me as I follow Christ in our leading. That we'd be able to say that to our spouse, to our children, to the, others, the other people in the, in the life group with us or in the ministry that we're involved with or even as our coworkers are looking on and, and looking for a picture of you and your kingdom in our lives. God, that we would be able to with confidence as we follow you to invite others to follow our example as disciples, as those who take up our cross daily and follow after you. And God, as we look to uh, the leaders that you've placed in our lives, God, those who are mentoring us, those who are ahead of us on that journey of faith, help us to be discerning and wise, not to be impressed by external features or characteristics, but really to look at the heart as you do and only follow those who are following after you, not to be distracted by the glitz and the, and the glamour uh, or those values that the world upholds. Help us to judge as you do. Help us to see with your eyes. May our heart beat as yours does, O oh Lord.
We pray that you'd work in and through us that, Lord, we would glorify you as the king, as the sovereign, that we would get on board with your kingdom mission, that when people ask us to explain about the kingdom, we would lead with that and be excited about that opportunity and not remain silent about the things of your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for your spirit working in our hearts, empowering us to be used for you, for your glory. Thank you that you transform hearts, that you make new creations, that you're working in powerful ways in and through us. And Lord, we pray that you would increase that work, God, that that we would go from this place as your ambassadors, as your representatives on this earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.